Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. My guest for this episode is Pete Wargent. Pete is one of Australia's leading property economists and investors, a best-selling author and blogger. Having reached financial independence at 33, Pete is now a regular on TV and splits his time between the UK and Noosa. From the outside, Pete's journey seems to include success after success. But as you'll discover in this conversation, Pete's journey included many ups and downs, hard work and sacrifice. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Pete Wargent. Pete, thanks for joining me on the show. 
Pleasure. Uh, lots to talk about. Not only are you an, a best-selling author, you're, you're, you run daily blog, you run, you wear multiple hats and, uh, you're financially independent by 33. So there's probably people hearing that sitting back thinking, geez, 33, what am I doing? Myself included, I'm thinking the same thing. So there's lots to talk about. And I just want to say thanks for appearing, mate. It's great to have you. Yeah, pleasure. It's great to be uh, down in Melbourne. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, you're native to Brisbane now? Yeah, actually, um, I live in Noosa, actually, so uh, oh, yeah, a couple, couple of hours north. Yeah, great. So you've, you've written a number of books, and I found out today just before we are talking off air, and you've written another one. Uh, yeah, so um, it's kind of a, the next in the um, the series, and the, the subject is financial literacy for, for the young. Um, so I think it's, um, it's a growth area of interest and um what i've tried to do in that book is i've taken some of the traditional ideas of mm. financial habits and financial literacy for young people i've tried to bring it forward into the 21st century because a lot of things have changed in terms of um you know younger people not seeing cash as mm. much as we used to uh, more use of cards and afterpay and all the other things so uh yeah and uh, so some traditional ideas but also um some other new ideas in terms of what, what type of careers are becoming obsolete and what's becoming uh, more in demand. So, uh, yeah, it covers quite a spectrum. It's great. And obviously starting the debate or starting the, the, the thought process earlier on is really important because that's where we develop a lot of these habits. And even for the parents themselves that perhaps don't have the skills, you know, we you go into a library and there might be 50 books on parenting. Obviously, there's no one right answer, right? Yeah, and um, well, I think we—I mean—that's actually self-evident because uh, you find that a lot of people from a similar background. I mean, I'm from a large family mm. of seven, and people take different paths through life, um, despite having the same upbringing. So clearly, um, how you respond to your environment is as important as what happens to you. Um, but there's—I um, don't know—it's not as popular in Australia, but over in the UK, there used to be this hugely popular series called the um, the Up series, Seven Up, and mm. the idea was that. They could take a broad cross section of Brits at the age of seven, and um, the idea yeah. was they could predict how people's lives would play out. So, yeah, based on it's a Jesuit saying from uh, more than four hundred years ago: "Give me the boy of seven, and I will show you the man." And hmm. um, it's a bit of an arrogant uh, uh, concept for a series, but um, the basic premise was was that. And um, but by and large, um, you did find that people from the more privileged or wealthy backgrounds. I mean, they went into professional practice and mm. became law partners and so on and people from more humble backgrounds um they followed by and large the type of path that the producers expected uh, so there is something mm. in it because those um the habits it's almost like hypnosis um when you're born you've got no context uh, whatsoever for how to survive on this planet mm. so we pick up all these messages from our environment and that's how we learn the programming and they reckon um now, this is um, developmental biology, but they reckon about 95% of the programming and how you behave is um, delivered in the first seven years. So that's why it's so important. Yeah. Um, now, you can change the programming. That's the good news. But um, unless you consciously make an effort to do so, uh, a lot of uh, your path in life is almost predetermined by the mm. age of seven. Mm. What prompted you to write this book after you've written a few others? Uh, becoming a parent. That was okay. the driver. So uh, we've got two young kids and I... You know, I thought, you know, I've re read all this stuff on personal finance mm. over the years and I thought, but, you know, I've always, often read, oh, you know, it's important uh, instilling good habits at a young age. But I, I said, well, that's fine. But what, do, what does that actually mean? So <laughs> What habits? <laughs> yeah, that was the trigger for it. So I did a, a read as widely as I could 
um, mm. on the, the psychology of it, but also uh, the practical habits um, and also how, well, how things changing because the world of finance is changing. Mm. Um, so that was the driver for it. Um, it took me a period of time to obviously do the research and come up with a, a book. But um, yeah, the finished product is, is now out there. Yeah, great. And I don't think we mentioned the name. Uh, yes, Wealth Ways for the Young. Okay. Um, so and it's written for parents and there's also a section for teenagers to read as well so it's uh yeah it's it and I, I presented uh down at the gold coast a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. at the uh, somerset story fest huge event for schools in queensland and uh yeah and we i mean i speaking to the year 12s was pretty easy because those guys study mm-hmm. business and economics um yeah speaking to some of the grade eights in a in a 40 degree marquee it was hard work but it's, it was all good fun and well received yeah well that's what you got to do right when you launch a book you've got to get it in front of people see how they receive it and the schools i imagine are just craving this sort of stuff yeah yeah i mean it's tough for schools you from their perspective it's tough because there's a certain expectation the curriculum needs to cover these things uh financial literacy you know it's just one more thing that they've got mm. to try and squeeze in uh but the college down there somerset i mean they're a, a forward thinking type of education environment they have um a course for entrepreneurs and you know having a, we did a breakfast on financial literacy so mm. um yeah not all schools have that capability but they're really uh, among the best the reason i think i think this is a really good place to start a conversation because you reading your books you as a child it seems you know if we fast forward to today i should say we fast forward to today you're highly respected as an economist or a property guy, also just an all-round holistic, I suppose, wealth coach, right? But you yourself, it didn't start, you know, you didn't come from a very, I should say, financially literate family, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, I, mean, I suppose um, I mean, that it, it almost, um, I, maybe I come across a bit derogatory in the way I describe it sometimes, but it was a different time. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, back in yeah, well, the current thing in the last couple of years has been limiting the amount that people can borrow. In fact, APRA has had to put out a practice guide um, because the appetite for debt these days, when you've got the lowest interest rates in the generation, is very different mm. from um, the period when I grew up and um, our parents' generation, 17% interest rates. Um, mm. you know, the goal was to get out of debt as quickly as possible. Um, and But of course, um, my parents being uh, public sector people it was all about the pension and pay off your home so there was no um there was uh, stock ownership in britain a few people uh, got onto the british telecom quote and there was mm-hmm. a couple of other uh, floats i should say and um and there was a couple of other sort of flotations where or floats where people became um part of the uh, stakeholder economy was the buzzword at the time but actually most people didn't own stocks it just wasn't a done thing and investment property is the same there was a there was a few professional landlords but in the part of the world where i grew up that was almost a, a swear word i guess and uh, for, for most people you you bought a home you paid it off at very high interest mm-hmm. rates um, and the, the pension was everything and that the pension came from the company that you worked for right? yeah or in the um yes that's right so the defined benefit pension scheme and uh, for people in the public sector um it was uh, well pension for life essentially so you retired mm-hmm. on a final salary pension scheme and if you live to be 100 um the pension just kept on going but of course in the time between uh, me you know growing up and entering the workforce uh, they were shifting very much across the defined contribution in britain and um yeah accumulation funds obviously in australia mm. and then for those that don't know that's where you c- contribute regular amounts and then 
when you hit 65 or whatever you, whatever you have is whatever you have. Yeah, that's right. So it shifted the um, responsibility a lot more onto individuals, whether mm-hmm. they realize it or not. Because if you think about um, some of the British companies, like um, I suppose someone like Rolls-Royce would be a good example. Um, when um, so I, was, uh, I was a chartered accountant and when... Um, yeah, when uh, we had to bring under international accounting standards, we had to bring the pension liabilities onto the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those companies found out that their pension liabilities, you know, a couple of billion pounds, it dwarfed the, the rest of the balance sheet. So, um, so yeah. the, the liabilities for paying pensions was greater than the value of the company. In some yeah. Cases. Oh, yeah. In some cases, some of the big supermarkets and so on, it wiped out, you know, half the balance sheet. So, um, yeah. And I think that was at that time, there was a, a growing awareness of the, um, some of the pension, deficits and mm-hmm. uh yeah and there, there was a big shift and these days um the the pensions in britain very much about the contribution and not a defined benefit when you retire yeah let's talk a bit more about your upbringing obviously still have an accent where did you grow up and uh, one of the things i like to ask is who if anyone influenced you towards this uh towards this path of investing and, and money and, and property in your instance yeah, so I, um, you wouldn't know it today from my, um, relatively well-spoken accent, but I, I grew up in, um, South Yorkshire, a place called Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, um, it was a pretty, I suppose, depressed sort of city in those days because mm-hmm. the steel industry famously, um, contracted and the South Yorkshire coal mines were all being shut down. So, uh, mm-hmm. the population of Sheffield was shrinking. Um, my dad, um, went in corrective services um so he he ran a hostel for young offenders so i guess you might call it like a halfway house so that's mm-hmm. where i grew up um so pretty i suppose lively sort of place and my dad's work by its very nature took us to where sort of those kind of areas and yep. um yeah so that's where i grew up and um uh i suppose yeah you see a different i suppose different side of life in those kind of uh, locations but um yeah we're very much um despite that from a very middle class sort of background um mm. my parents were uh, idealist um socialists i suppose is the, the mm. phrase of the day so um yeah my mum was a sort of a, an anti nuclear campaigner and she worked as a teacher in um schools uh, the, these days you would have a different name for it they used to call them special schools but i suppose mm. you'd call them uh, schools for people with troubled domestic situations or upbringings mm. um so they were very much about um uh, fairness, equality, and helping others. Uh, so left-wing politics these days, it doesn't always get a great rap, but it, it came from a good place. So very much about um, helping people less fortunate. You grew up with brothers, only brothers, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of us. So um, Catholic family. So uh, yeah, it was um, as many children as God sends. So yeah, all boys <laughs> though. So uh, it's a pretty, uh, yeah, it's a pretty sort of lively place to uh, to grow up. And uh, yeah, but it was all good fun. Have any of them settled out here in Australia? Or? Uh, no, one of my younger brothers lived in Perth. He actually taught at uh, the school at Christchurch there for a while, but um, yeah, he lives in South Korea. Uh, the others have uh, it's a bit of a diaspora, but um, mm. yeah, they're mainly uh, settled around London. Mm. I'm interested because you mentioned before that back in those days, someone may have got some stock from an IPO or a float of a, a private company. In one of your books, you say that the one thing you take away from your folks and their attitude towards investing was the the value in education and investing in your own learning. So I'm interested in that period where you go from, you know, going around these 
potential housing projects or whatever with your with your parents parents to then going on to study. So what happened after? What where did you go to study and what happened next? Yeah, so I uh, studied at the, the university in Sheffield. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it was it, it wasn't an overnight thing for me. I I suppose um, one thing our, our parents were very keen on us going to university, and my mm-hmm. parents met at university in Sheffield. They were keen that we went on to higher education. Um, but in terms of um, career guidance, we didn't really didn't really get much in that. You know, we weren't pushed in any particular direction. Um, and, you know, I was interested in um, finance, numbers, that kind of thing. So I, I guess I gravitated towards the idea of being a chartered accountant mainly. Well, the two reasons. One, I just thought it's a good career. Um, mm. You know, it's just good grounding because you can go on to be CFO or Group FC, that kind of role. But also um, there was another driver that came later and that's that I'd spent some time as a backpacker in Australia and back in those days uh chartered accountant was 60 points on the um permanent mm-hmm. residency application plus I think you got an extra 30 points if you'd done three years um with a firm so for me that was quite a big driver to get the qualification mm. because then I could get um dual citizenship and spend time in Australia and that's that's actually what uh, played out because you came here to play cricket is that right? Yeah, that's so. My first experience of um, well, Aussies was uh, playing cricket in England. So I used to play at the same club as um, Alistair Cook, who's a bit younger than me, but he's, he's a really good guy, very very talented. Hmm. Um, so we used to have quite a few overseas players who would come, uh, usually one or two a year, uh, depending on if they could um, find a European heritage somewhere and they could uh, <laughs> get them across the line. But um, yeah, and uh, quite a number of those had played at the Waverley Club, which is in um, Bondi in Sydney. And um, yeah, that sowed the seed of the idea. Let's go and play a season in Australia. And I found when I came out, um, I guess like a lot of young people, you know, I was out of my comfort zone. I didn't, you know, didn't have as many friends and family around. Uh, loved the cricket. Um, mm. It was really good. I improved my game no ends. But it was, um, I guess, towards the end of the season, we had a bit of a sort of, a, I guess, a boys you know, surfing holiday up the coast and drove up to Noosa and surfers and all those places. And I guess it was only at that stage I thought, oh, hang on a second, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be going back to the English um, English winter. So, uh, yeah, and that's what sowed the seed, really. Um, and, okay. yeah, no, I did in the end follow through with that. Yeah, so you went and you studied and then uh, you move into a, I think it was a mid-tier firm and you, you're working in auditing is that right? yeah so yeah it's a pretty uh, very sort of traditional bread and butter career i guess i started in the west end of london a uh, firm that was just on the edge of mayfair so um there was mid-tier um accounting that's where i did my um well, what they used to call them articles i guess you call them exams these days and experience so three years in uh, auditing and assurance um i think actually that's where i started to see uh, because well, mid-tier firms you have a lot of um high net worth individuals uh, successful business owners, not so much in the way of the listed companies. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started to say, ah, oh, okay, hang on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, these guys have assets and they have investments working for them and they have multiple business interests. And, um, I suppose it was a bit of an eye opener having come from, I, I guess, what you would call a socialist family background mm-hmm. where, you know, that, that kind of thing was just, that's another world you know and um it seems it's different today that there was no there's no such thing in those days as new labor and centrist politics it was it was very much it was Tories for business and labor for trade unions so my parents were trade Mm -hmm. unionists and um 
yeah, that was that was the way it was back in those mm. days. There was no middle ground. Um, but yeah, going to work in London, in the West End, and seeing uh, you know, working for a lot of high net worth is like okay, it just opened my eyes to the other side, I suppose. Yeah. So you you wrote a bit this a bit in your book. You say things like your your focus at this stage began. It didn't fully you didn't fully make the conversion, but you've began to shift your focus away from say income, but more so to developing those assets for lifelong wealth. Yeah, it took some time. So I think, um, you know, when you start out in that type of professional practice career, uh, you start out on a good graduate salary and then you get up uh, three years, you qualify, then you can go on and become a supervisor or manager. And you may be, um, at that stage, you might be earning, well, you become a high rate taxpayer mm. essentially. Yeah. Um, and that's when you, you know, at that stage, you, you suddenly start, to, it starts to click that actually the more you earn, the more tax you pay. Um, you know, you, you buy a sports car, you know, you, you buy your first home, but it very, very easily gets spent. Um, mm. and you also see people further on down that track and they're still doing the same thing, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years later, which is great for some people, but not for everyone. Mm. And so, yeah, that's where the seed started to be planted. And I, I suppose it was when I went to, um, Deloitte, which is one of the big four, obviously. Um, my, I met, um, my, well, then girlfriend now wife and she she was absolutely miles ahead of me financially and she was a couple of years older and a senior manager and essentially my boss to all intents and purposes and i think that's when i saw okay you can i could see how you know buying your first house um in cambridge for her you know paying down a massive chunk of the mortgage investing in the stock market and um you know seeing her net worth up here and me still you know nearer the beginning mm. uh, that was like a big a big eye opener for me. There's a story that you tell in your book, Get a Financial Grip, about you, you start by saying the, the incredibly tough or long work hours you were doing, you know, all nighters, 36 hour days, etc. And then you walk into a meeting. The good old days, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that? Do you know the meeting that I'm talking about? Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I remember the anecdotes in the, in the book. And yeah, it essentially, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, people have picked me up on this. So that never happened, but it, it definitely did. And I, I can uh, get people to vouch <laughs> for me. But yeah, the, I mean, the partners were, um, you know, they were essentially, you know, ranked and it goes on all the way through in professional practice. It never goes away. Uh, but the, the number of chargeable hours per, you know, um, per qualified accountant in the office and, mm-hmm. you know, and they were saying, you know, we're right up at the top of this list. And I, I was kind of sitting there thinking as a, you know, as a young manager, I think, but why is that a, you know, why is that a good thing? You know, I've, I've clocked up a few hundred hours for the month and, uh, but it, there's no change to your remuneration. Mm. It's uh, benefiting somebody else. And, um, yeah, I guess, uh, no, I, my, my now wife, Heather, she pitched in and said, well, hang on a sec. Uh, you know, <laughs> if we're not getting paid overtime, how, how you, uh, you know, positioning this is a good thing. Uh, but you know, that, that was the way it was in big four. It was, um, even in the job interview, they said, look, we, we want our pound of flesh. Um, but the good thing about a big four accounting career is that there's very, a very structured career path. So you're only ever maybe 18 months away from the next pay rise, the next promotion, the next bonus. Mm. Um, so, you know, that path through from analyst to senior analyst to manager, senior manager, director, partner, it's all laid out. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess we, we went through that system. It's pretty hard thing to, uh, step off the gravy train, I guess. Yeah. For the people who aren't familiar with the environment or the the, the chargeable hours, can, can you just explain how that, I suppose, your performance is, your KPIs in a big accounting firm like that? 
Yeah, so that, I mean, they essentially used to email out a spreadsheet once a month, and it was uh, <laughs> basically uh, the name or shame. Uh, <laughs> so I guess if you worked for, um, I don't know, if a company selling fax machines, it would be the person that made the most sales. But for for us as um, you know, young managers, it was um, well, how many hours of time that you can charge to a client if you actually done mm. in a given week or a given month? Um, and uh, the the bigger accounting firms. Most managers will have um, a listed company client or two. Um, so they, obviously, with the listed companies, you've got quarterly reporting, half years, you've got four years. So they, you know, they're, they're beasts that they feed on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it yeah, became almost a competition. Who's, who can record the most hours that they can charge the clients over a month? And it's, um, you don't want to be on the, uh, the spreadsheet that gets emailed out being the person that didn't do it, didn't put the hours in. And there was a, a general pressure. You know, um, you, you you didn't want to be seen to be leaving the office at six o'clock if other people were staying till ten or eleven. So, uh, or you know, working weekends was normal. Um, so yeah, but it's um, yeah, it's a competitive environment, but it was a lot of good fun as well, I should say. Okay, because I mean, most people think you know, nine to five doesn't end there if you run your own business or you're trying to become a partner in one of these accounting firms, right? No, and but the but the thing where you find when you run your own show as you know that the the hours are yeah, not always sociable and so mm. you're doing it at your own volition so it's, it's different but it's um i guess when you're creating your own thing it's um you're much more passionate oh for sure so after your time at deloitte you did you get married in australia is that what happened? yeah at um kayama beach so uh, we, nice. we we thought quite um carefully about invites because i'm from a large family plus mm. um you know you think oh, you've got your brothers there are the halves you know my parents are you know, and their new partners and uh, before we knew it our list was up to a lot yeah. and um yeah we just thought logistically we're in australia a lot of our friends and family are in europe and uh yeah in the end we just uh, it was very quick and a uh, <laughs> simple wedding on the beach uh, nobody invited just a photographer and a registrar and that was it but it was great oh lovely is that around the? Is, were you already settled in Australia, or had, yeah? So we to... we actually came. Uh, I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time in Australia from the nineteen nineties, but I actually came out. I became a permanent resident in two thousand and four. Um, so yeah, it was sometime after that that we settled down here, got married, um, bought our place um, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. So yeah, so um, but the thing is, our, our plan was always to try and split our time between. Um, England and Australia, hence why I've never lost the English accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we still, even now, we spend maybe five months of the year in, in the UK right. and the rest here. So, um, yeah, it re, uh, resets my accent each year, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> so is it the, the winter that you take off here in Australia or, and you want the summer back there or how does that work? Well, that was the grand idea. <laughs> it's okay. never really, um, never really worked that way. So, um, I guess the thing is with, um, in Australia, a lot, a lot, not much happens really through December and January, so it's a natural period um, to spend overseas. Uh, the trouble is, in you know, December is great in Britain, lead up to Christmas, you know, stuff going on, friends and family. Mm. Yeah, I'd say January is a bit trying at times because <laughs> it's it's cold, it's dark, yeah. and you know everyone's going back to work and they're miserable. So um, yeah, look, it doesn't. Um, yeah, the grass isn't always green. It doesn't always work out as planned. But um, yeah, I'm not going to complain. Mm. So you 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 come to Australia, and if I'm not mistaken, you were still working with Deloitte. Yeah, it wasn't the plan. So I had um, I got my Australian residency, and I so I could you know, within reason I could do anything. But I just thought, well, I suppose um, you know I'd been through at that point a change in you know 
change of relationship, uh, you know, change of country, uh, moving to a new house, uh, lots of disruption. Right. And um, I figured that maybe some continuity on the career front wouldn't hurt. It wasn't necessarily the plan to stay there too long, but um, yeah, I did a, I think maybe a, a year or year or two at Deloitte in Sydney, a couple of years, I think at most, um, mm. before I then went off into industry. But um, yeah, initially I was uh, working there. You talk about some, I, I remember it's probably poor framing to say it was a dark time, but there were times where you've had this sort of realization, this moment where you've gone, okay, I'm, you know, working ridiculous hours, I'm, I'm, I'm eating junk food, I'm, way too much caffeine and and beers like was there a moment for you where it kind of like reset everything in your your lifestyle but also your attitude towards your finances yeah i think the the financial thing you know i think that was already in train for me but um yeah i guess the, the the nature of that type of work hard play hard lifestyle if you like which is mm quite normal in, in London and then Sydney and it's um people feel like they've worked hard so the you know Friday night and Saturday in the pub you know it's it's pretty common for people in their mid-20s um but yeah the I, I found that um and I think actually it was a, a combination and probably of all of those things you know, change of job change of country um poor you know dietary habits um you know in the office drinking coffee all day mm-hmm. and then you know boozing in the evening a combination of all those things and that disruption, it, it was giving rise to quite a bit of anxiety, mm. which is one of those things that some people never get it, some people do. Mm. But um, yeah, I used to get dreadful anxiety attacks. But uh, I can see now with hindsight, I could I could see the drivers of it. Um, but at the, at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on because I felt, you know, the young, fairly confident person, these things shouldn't be happening to me. But uh, yeah, pretty healthy, you're still running marathons and all the rest of it, right? Yeah, and also, but um, you generally find that. Um, yeah, that that type of anxiety has a root cause, and for me, I just wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't living a life that was congruent. I guess you know, these days I do. I run my own business. I do what I feel like doing. But I was, you know, working in professional practice, big four. I was a square peg in a round hole, for want of a better phrase. And um, yeah, there was um, yeah, it was a disruptive time anyway. Mm. Um, you know, moving away from family and all the rest of it. So um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to explain if you've never if mm. you've never suffered from anxiety and panic attacks and things like that um because they're not rational by their very nature and uh yeah that was a, that was a difficult thing to go through uh, but you, these days people will talk about it much more openly uh back then i don't think it was such the, the done thing so mm. uh yeah it was interesting times but uh yeah i guess um there was certainly something that um once i started running my own business became much more motivated in terms of productivity uh, and it, it, a lot of stuff flowed on from there. Um, so these days I'm, you know, vegan. I, I start the day with a run at the beach and healthy food and, you know, uh, early bed, all the rest of it. No, no booze. It's a very different lifestyle <laughs> these days. And, uh, yeah, I look back at it, you know, me that used to, you know, smoke and drink. And it's, it's like a different person, but I guess it just goes to show you can turn anything around. Yeah. And speaking of turning around, we should focus our gaze now and, and turn to, how you go from where you were at that point in your life to then at 33 being financially independent, we'll, we'll get into some of the strategies in a minute, but do you think that there were any psychological biases or social pressures or anything like that that was holding you back from what you eventually did? Oh, 100%, yeah. And we already touched on some of them. So 
I think, you know, I came from uh, an upbringing and an environment where the expectation was uh, go to university, get a professional career um, and just do, you know, the, the, the typical strategy, you know, you buy a house, uh, get the, you know, two, a couple of nice cars, you know, you pay down the mortgage. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that was essentially the, that's what everyone did in my uh, social group. But I think, um, yeah, there's a peer pressure thing too, because there's, there's that old phrase that you're, you're the person or you're the sum of the six people you spend the most time with. And I do believe that's true. Mm. Um, because even if it's an unconscious thing, you pick up, um, you know, uh, messages from other people, you mirror their behaviors. And if you're, if you're hanging out with people who are, you know, do acting in a certain way, you, you're very likely to follow. So it takes, um, it takes a bit of conscious reprogramming to take a different path, but that's what we decided to do. And we, um, we literally sat down and mapped out, right, don't want to be doing this for the next 40 years. This is how we're going to get out of it. And, um, yeah, it was, um, well, one of the things we learned is that it never goes completely according to plan. Hmm. But if you've got, if you've got a big target and a big plan and push towards it, well, you can adjust course on the way. Hmm. Um, so that's what we did. We literally sat down, I guess at the age of, I don't know, 28. It's like, look, we've made some good progress. We've got two, you know, uh, my wife is a director at Deloitte and then she went into industry and did some pretty senior roles. I was on a good uh, good bit of coin as well. It's like, right, how do we leverage this mm. into a better result? And, um, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of luck along the way, as you, you hope for. But, um, yeah, I guess the, the thing is actually making that decision, that was the important thing. Do you think you would have come to the same conclusion or made that same plan without her? No, not at all, no. It's, um, I think so. My wife's from a um, very different background, so family of uh, farmers. And the thing in farming... Um, but they, they certainly had this view that you acquire land, you don't sell it. And, mm-hmm. um, I guess that's a very sort of Aussie attitude to, uh, to real estate. But that was certainly her, her upbringing. Her, her parents had come from literally nothing, um, built up a farm. Mm-hmm. They bought fields and land and they, they'd never sold anything. And her dad, she's followed that, um, that same approach. Now, I see it being a bloke, I like the idea of trading more and mm-hmm. buying and selling, but she's been adamant ever, ever since day one since we were buying our properties around Sydney and London, other places, she's been adamant we never sell, just buy good assets and don't sell them. And uh, I regularly uh, fantasize about you know, selling down assets and doing different things, but she's <laughs> said, no, that's not what I was taught. You, you buy land, you don't sell it. So, uh, yeah, and that, that actually rubbed off on me, uh, just the idea of the, the power of compounding. Mm. It seems like you're quite the duo, and uh, I suppose people hearing this, who may not have a partner that they might be a bit off put, but I guess, and I've said this a lot because I've talked to a few guests who said probably the best investment I've ever made is in my partner and, and you know, being in a relationship has been fantastic for me. I'm going to say that in case Heather's listening. So yes, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it is true in my case, <laughs> yeah. but it's true, right? That gives you the option of the optionality in your life, so to speak. And for me, I wouldn't be able to start my business without a partner that I could trust and, and we were in it together. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, um, one of the biggest hurdles for somebody who wants to, you know, if you've got a business idea or a startup or you want to go and day trade or whatever it is, 
if you've got somebody else that supports you and it, because as you know statistically most businesses don't make it through the first year or two mm. if you've got somebody who can say all right well let's save up a buffer let's um you know maybe i'll do some contracting work for the first six months or a year or whatever it is um you know just until you've got things up and running i mean it can make it all the difference it's it's a, a harder gig on your own for sure for sure i mean you're taking a risk right whatever you do you, if you're an entrepreneur, you're taking a risk and yeah. having someone on your side just lowers the risk. In, 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 it's just almost, you don't appreciate it until you have it. But yeah. And in fact, so, it, so in our specific case, um, uh, we, we'd saved up a buffer and had this plan. I was going to set up my own business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd, we'd spend some time traveling. Uh, but Heather said, look, uh, I'll, um, we didn't have kids at this stage and she's, uh, she did a bit of, um, uh, contracting work at a couple of so on the Barangaroo project and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Um, and just having that peace of mind to actually be able to not be panicking about cash flows and, you know, investing in this, that and the other to get started up. I mean, it, it makes all the difference for an entrepreneur or a, a, a startup. It's um, a huge benefit. Mm. Shifting gears now, if you weren't accountants, would it have been different? Do you think, or do you think you naturally had the skill set, the technical skills? Hmm. I, well, if you look at um, a lot of accountants don't have great uh, portfolios, so I don't know that it necessarily follows. I mean, I suppose the, the useful skill sets you learn, because um, I was um, I was a Group FC for a couple of listed companies, I was head of tax compliance. So, you know, I used to write annual reports. So it does, for sure, it gives you an edge because I think um, a lot of people wouldn't have the same insights into mm. what, what accounting standards actually mean. Um, you know, what, what do all the notes actually mean in an annual report? So some of that stuff is useful. Um, I think understanding this very simple concepts like your personal balance sheets. Um, you know, Can you explain P&L. that a bit? Well, so in terms of, um, so like every company has its assets and its liabilities, but it's exactly the same for a person. So you've got your assets, which typically for most people is your home, your superannuation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do investment properties or, uh, share portfolios, whatever it is, those those are your typically your assets. So people might include their golf clubs or a car or whatever, but things that are actually going to make you money. Uh, and then you've got your liabilities, which for most people is their home loan. Um, but I guess as an accountant, you learn quite quickly because you prepare accounts for people and for businesses that, um, yeah, having liabilities against things like cars and boats and stuff that isn't going to actually help you um, mm. move ahead. Um, if you could learn to eliminate uh, that debt and only have debt that's actually working for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess as an accountant, that stuff is the bread and butter. You know, you, mm. you understand double entry bookkeeping and all of that. Um, so I think it does it does help, but it's, um, it's how you use that information that matters. I'm sure we both know accountants that... Uh like sieves with money, you just give them some and it disappears. And yeah, and there's yeah. a certain lifestyle expectation, I guess, that goes with being a partner in a, in a law firm or an accounting firm. And yeah, I suppose you know, that's the modern trap, isn't it? You know, yeah. always. Um, you know, that we were talking before we came on about the you know the, the lifestyle you want is always on the horizon, yeah. and it's, it's the same in any uh, line of work. It's that lifestyle inflation, right? Mm. Early. On your path to this financial independence, you've you talk a bit about in the books the the strategies that you use, and and one of those is uh, using index funds and, and trading and property for wealth. We'll start with the everything that's not property because we'll get to that in a minute. How did you go about and 
how did you go about learning about those subjects? And also, what were some of the resources you used? Were there good books that you are fond of? Yeah, so when I uh, did my school's prezzo the other day, this was a literature festival, and I, I, um, I reeled off a Charlie Munger quote about, <laughs> you know, he's never met any uh, successful people who are not readers. So I was trying to impart on the kids, you know, leaders are readers, like the old yeah. adage says. Um, but I, I was, I've always been a mad reader. So, yeah, I mean, I read everything, every book I could find on mm. stock market. So, you know, all the way from, you know, Ben Graham to some really dodgy books on day trading. And <laughs> you know, so I've read everything and I figured that, um, even from the worst books, you learn something. Even if it's what doesn't work, you, you'll always come away with something. So, um, yeah, like, uh, I've read some really good books on the Aussie stock market. So, um, Peter Thornhill, Colin Nicholson, I, I loved all that stuff. So I was just like a sponge. Mm. Um, so I, in terms of my strategies, I guess I figured as a CA who wrote annual reports, I figured, well, surely to me, being a value investor, it makes perfect sense, right? But, um, I guess it took me some time to realize that you can analyze you know, uh, an annual report till the ink falls off the page, but you can still make cock up. So, mm. um, uh, these days, I guess I'm in a different position because I'm further on in my journey and I tend to take a more, um, you know, I'll still try and buy things when they're cheap, but it's more likely to be an ETF or an index these days. But, um, yeah, it's horses for courses, you know, these days I don't necessarily need big returns. Whereas back then I was much more impatient. Mm. Um, but yeah, as, a, as you said, I did share trading. You know, back in the days when margin loans were very popular, uh, you know, options, CFDs, I, I gave everything a run. Mm. I guess it's, it's working out what works for you because investing is not all about the numbers. It's also about finding something that fits your personality type. Mm. And I guess I worked out in time. Um, I think I was at a seminar. There's a guy called Roger Hamilton and he talks about the different personality types. And I it just clicked. I watched his stuff and I'm like, that's it. I'm an accumulator. I just like the snowball. I guess that mm. was it. So, um, initially I did a lot of share trading, um, buying and selling, but I've, I've actually found my best results have just been from accumulating and a buy and hold approach. I know it's not trendy these days, but that's <laughs> nevertheless true. So it was as simple as monthly paycheck comes in, X percent goes to index funds, X percent goes here, et cetera. Yeah. So when I, um, so you, you mentioned when I first met my wife and, um, you see, back in those days, I'd get the the bonus or the paycheck, and it was like right off, you know, <laughs> off to the pub, off on a holiday, buy a new car. And she had, um, I think it must have been passed down to her, but ever since she was like, a teenager or maybe twenty or something, she'd been um, just uh, a dollar cost averaging. I guess it wasn't called that in Britain, but just um, into the FTSE index, and there was also uh, she had an ethical FTSE tracker, and she's been running that now for. I guess 23, 24 years. Mm. And we're still doing it even now. Um, so, I mean, she, she introduced me to that idea when, when I was younger. Um, and that's, um, you know, the FTSE's been through its ups and downs. And I guess with the benefits of hindsight, you might have said, well, why, you know, why pick the FTSE 100? You know, why not pick another product? But I guess you do learn over time. The most important thing is actually doing something. Mm. And, you know, if some of those, uh, decisions could have been a bit smarter while you just learn for the next time. Um, yeah, for sure. And you haven't, but from what I know, it wasn't all just, you know, all nothing in the FTSE. There's other assets and it's the house, it's houses in London, houses in Australia. It's not just. Yeah. And that's you know, still, even now we're still in the accumulation phase. So, um, you know, we'll buy this year. So last year we bought, um, probably in 
They, well, we bought some farmland in the UK. We bought a place in New Farm as a renovation project in Brisbane. This year we'll buy a property in the UK. So we just, these days it's with a lot less leverage though. Mm. Um, so our property purchases for cash in Britain. Um, so yes, yeah, different, different for a different stage, but we're still accumulating on all fronts. Um, and if I get some excess cash in Australia, it just goes into a listed investment company and, into the bottom drawer so it's it's interesting i I find with so much information out there these days um yeah the idea of a buy and hold approach doesn't seem to be very trendy but um yeah i guess it's you know we're we're not in a situation now where we need to take big risks so it Mm. works for us one of the things that you talk about in the book is almost like this cleanse or this financial reset that you did early in the piece you i think you committed to doing a marathon and you thought socializing on the fridays out we're going to save was, was, what are some of the things that you use to just, if there's people out there thinking, you know, I want to be like Pete, I want to start to save, I want to invest. What are the sacrifices you had to make to set yourself on that path? Yeah. Well, I suppose we, so we set a, a goal, um, sometime, I guess, uh, maybe when I was 28 or something like that. We set this goal, uh, and I'm not saying this is right for everyone. This is our journey and our experience said, I'm going to buy 10 properties in 10 years. I guess it was Heather's, Heather's idea, um, we're not going to do, um, you know, buy all the junk, buy rubbish out in the sticks. It's, it's capital city property and we're going to save our backsides off, um, save the deposits. And then we've got, got some equity go again. Yep. Um, now it took us a bit longer than 10 years to do in the end because, um, I guess because we focused on Sydney and London and, you know, those deposits don't come cheap. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I spoke at the schools event the other day, I said, well, you know, I wasn't talking about real estate, but I'm just saying if you if you want to get ahead in life, you have to be able to spend less than you earn. It's it's a very simple thing to say, but it is actually incredible how few people can actually truly manage that. So um so some people just have it and some don't. And yeah, I guess we figured if we're gonna actually do this and get out of that nine to five, then we have to do something different. So it was, um, I guess we relocated to Australia. So that was a natural reset. So yep. all the old standing orders and direct debits, you know, they stopped and it's like, okay, let's start this and do it properly from scratch. Um, but yeah, the biggest hurdle for me was that I used to, well, as already alluded to, to me, it was, uh, weekends were for mm. the pub, you know, and it's, um, the hardest time of the week for me. I, if you'd done a 50 or a 60 hour week to not then, knock off at five o'clock on a Friday and in Let Sydney, Australia, you know, you've got the opera bar literally 50 meters away. Yeah. It's a very, to me, that was almost, it seemed an impossibility, but we, we made a commitment, right? We're going to do the marathon in six months time. And I just used to go to the gym for two hours <laughs> between <laughs> like five and seven o'clock. And then after found once you got through the first couple of hours, it wasn't so bad, but I, I, I think I did an interview recently where so I was pretty resentful of that for quite a long time. Everyone else was out enjoying themselves. Mm. But, um, yeah, I've learned in time that, yeah, new habits form relatively quickly. And, uh, yeah, and that, um, yeah, that six month period, uh, we'd set a goal of buying a property, um, at one Darling Harbour. So pretty prestige address. And, right. um, yeah, I mean, with two, you know, two higher income earners, we got there, saved the deposit for that place. And, um, yeah, and it's, uh, I suppose, you know, six months of your life of hard saving, but the, it pays itself back many times over. And it's it's a nice feeling today when people are talking about, oh, you know, Sydney property downturn. It's so like, well, not so much at Darling Harbour, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not really, you know, it hasn't really touched the side. So, yeah, yeah and um, 
Yeah, we just followed it on from there. So that was how we broke broke the uh, spending trend. But you do find that actually habits, you know, these days I'm a vegetarian. Once that would have seen like anathema to me, but these days it's been so long, it's just second nature and that's yeah. the way habits go. You've said before that property might be the, the best investment for the average investor to make, you know, to achieve that long-term financial su- success. And I think you've said property for wealth in, t- in the past. Why would you say that's the case for property versus, say, shares or something else? Yeah, yeah. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, I um, the property shares debate for some for whatever reason, I've never understood this. It gets so uh, very tribal, mm. um, especially on social media. It seems, um, and to some extent, people seem to be influenced by whether they are a homeowner or not, as though that <laughs> has some kind of a bearing on what's going to happen. Um, I mean, I, I suppose that my my thought process when I wrote that. Bearing in mind, this is at a period. When the cash rate was at seven and a quarter percent, and oh, yeah. uh, we we're coming into a resources downturn, and there was a massive, I mean, truly massive undersupply of housing in Sydney. My my thought process was, well, um, I mean, just look at it statistically. There are more property millionaires than there are in the stock market. Why? Because it's not a numbers thing. Because you know, logically, businesses will return more on equity than a than a, a fibro shack or a house. <laughs> it's it's an obvious. Um, point to make but people for whatever reason psychologically they trust in uh, long-term trends in land values Mm. because there's no daily quoted price and they they will buy a house they'll pay down the mortgage they won't worry too much about what the market's doing and in 20 years they've built a massive pool of equity now i know that um part of that is nonsensical because um if there was a daily quoted price on the front of their house they might look at things a bit differently but it's just um, uh, nevertheless true. I mean, if you look at the equity that's been built up in Aussie housing, it was, I think it peaked at five and a half trillion. You know, it's, it's a huge amount of wealth that people can create in real estate. Um, but it's, it's because they've got this ability, like people can with their super, just to turn it off and um, just focus on paying down the mortgage. But um, I, I don't doubt that dollar for dollar, the stock market, um, over the next 20 years will outperform the property market. There's no question, but whether or not people can actually leverage into it you in the same that, way, yeah. that's, that's a different question. When, if, if, say, if someone you don't know walks up to you on the street and they says, they say to you, I usually walk the other way. <laughs> yeah, you see them coming across. <laughs> so they, they walk up to you and they say, you know, property or shares or which property should I buy or whatever. What factors would you say? And we talked about personality traits. What factors would you say lend themselves well to being successful in property? Yeah, well, I see the, the question that I get more commonly is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, quite often. So when I'm in London, I'll get an email. Oh, I found this place in Chelsea. You know, it's a nice apartment. Do you think it's a good investment? It's, it's you know, it's completely the wrong question, of course. So the question is, well, why, you know, why do you want to own a, you know, a property? Or quite often, um, in London, because there's no uh, restriction on foreign buyers, it's all about. I want a, I want a place where I can walk to the theatre. And uh, <laughs> do you think it's a good investment? There's well, this can you've got to really start with why. You know, why are you actually doing this? Um, is are you buying somewhere to live? Are you buying to for the return on the money you invest? Or so people generally they start with the wrong questions, I mm. guess. Um, what makes um, somebody successful in property i think it's a long-term outlook and but there's also a certain level of tenacity i think that you need because there is always uh, summer and winter seasons and people get flushed out in the, the winter seasons and spooked out of the market mm-hmm. and they um 
And I think, um, I suppose the, the hardest thing for people is not following the crowd. It's exactly the same when you're buying an ETF, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're buying a, a global ETF in a certain country, there'll be a period every so often when they get very, very cheap. And that's the time when everyone's getting out. And it's the same in, in housing. It's, uh, it's a psychological, Social proof, I guess. Um, mm. people feel, you see this in Sydney in 2016, 17. If there's 50 other people bidding on this terrace, well, they all want it. It must be a good investment. It's like, well, you're thinking about it the wrong way because, you know, in two years time, there'll be one person bidding on that mm. terrace and, uh, it's not a better or worse investment because of that. It's just a cycle. But yeah, mm. I guess that just a, an awareness to the fact is that nothing performs well forever or badly forever. Mm. Interesting. Good. You know, when I think about investors in the share market, I think they're the best investors that I know are pretty humble. They're open-minded. They're lifelong learners. You know, they commit to themselves as much as they commit to anything else. And I, I, I wonder if it's a similar set of personality traits that might lend themselves. And I imagine it would too. A hundred percent. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, I, I have to almost uh, catch myself sometimes because with the advent of social media so i know you've got like a twitter account great Mm. example um you get um i think of the of the hundred or so people i follow on twitter at least five of them have been australia's best property analyst and best property information best you know and uh you get involved in these silly debates about you know this guy called that and you didn't and this guy said that and you you just have to remember that all of that stuff is meaningless you know you, you need to take a step back and go well, that's fine. People can't predict the future as it's shown in every cycle. And you just take a step away from it. And so well, think rationally. Mm. Uh, what, are, what are you doing for you? Uh, don't get drawn into all those silly debates about, yeah, he said, she said. Who was right. Yeah, that's it because it, it's a, it's a rabbit hole and it's a complete waste of your time. Don't worry so much about who was right. Just be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But also, yeah, try and just think logically you know and uh, rationally and try to detach yourself from all of that because it doesn't serve any purpose mm. um it's just yeah. a pissing contest about you know who who's smarter than this guy and what you find is that most people get some stuff right and some stuff wrong mm. here's a it's slightly a, a bit of a curveball for you if if i was asked what makes a really good investment on the share market i might say things like no debt or you know Good valuation in terms of like low P ratio, high returns on equity, et cetera. There's, you know, a million variables you could pull out and pick a, a handful that are your favorite. If you were looking at, if you were thinking of your ideal property, what are some of the things that would have? Would it be apartment, house? Would you be buying it for positive yield, distance to amenities? What, what, what would be ideal? I suppose, I think if you're taking a long term outlook, I mean, the oldest cliche in real estate is location because there's a lot of things you can change about a real estate asset. You can change potentially the zoning. You can change the, uh, the use. You can, mm-hmm. you can do any number of things to layout, whatever, but you can't change the location. It's fixed in place. Um, mm. so if you've got a long-term outlook, then the location probably has to come first. Um, and I think, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd all own big, uh, big blocks of land close to the city where people want to live, you know, but one of the things that we found over the years that um, because we've been a Sydney and London focused is you can't always afford, um, you know, the, the block that you mm. want. That's the, that's the reality of it. So especially in the mature capital cities like London, you may well be looking at an apartment style property. 
Um, so if that's the case, um, it's more about the land value content. So you, you typically say an investment grade, if you like, which is a, it's a bastardization of a term from the stock market. But I suppose a, an investment grade property in inverted commas would have a land value content of maybe 60% of the asset, um, right. even if it's an apartment. So you'd be looking at, uh, if you're buying something that's on a strata or an apartment, then you'd be looking at a block of four or something like that. Because if you look at, um, let's take the most recent example, I've got no um, no dog in this race, but if, if you look at something like the Sky Tower in Brisbane, it's 300 metres tall. Um, I mean, each individual apartment, the land value, which is ultimately what does the heavy lifting for you on a real estate asset over the long term, the land value might be 3% or mm. something of that nature. Uh, so there is no land value, you're just buying airspace. Um, so the scarce commodity in Australian property is obviously well-located land. So I think first and foremost that. Um, mm. How you finance the investment, that's that's a whole other question. It's very down, very much down to personal circumstances. And of course, change of government, that might actually uh, potentially trigger quite a lot of changes in terms mm. of how people finance property. But um yeah, I think in terms of the best assets, it comes down to, um, well, it's the old cliche about supply and demand, but it's, it's simple geometry, really. That so uh, the closer you get concentric circles to the to the, the heart of employment, there are, there's just less land, and the further out you go, there is land as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, if you're looking over a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon, the scarce commodity is well located land close to the city. Mm. It sounds like from reading your books and the blog that you have a focus on high quality, just like a share market investor would have a focus on, like I said, companies with low debt and all the rest of it. You have, you're willing to forgo it, the, the, the cheap stuff necessarily and, and just focus on the, those assets that will stand the test of time. Yeah. And I think, um, this is where being an accountant gives you a bit of an edge because it's, it's a numbers game to some extent because you can buy, uh, you can buy very cheap property in some parts the country mm. um you know you could buy a studio apartment in cairns or you know the northern territory mm. for very very cheap levels but what, what you quite quickly see when you look at other people's portfolios is that it, it only takes one repair bill you know uh, somebody trashes the unit and there's a five or ten grand repair that goes your capital gains for you know years you know so really um we've always figured that you'd be much better off owning a number of good quality maybe higher value assets. Um, and I'm not saying that that level of leverage is right for everyone. It was, this is just our experience. But mm. um, yeah, that's that's where we've seen all of the big results, you know, have come from higher value, better quality properties. So um, yeah, now the, and the stock market is a totally different beast. So um, I look at them as two, uh, you know, complementary, but very, very different um, investments. Okay. When... So, so there'll be a lot of uh, share market investors, po- property investors listening to this. But for those who have probably yet to make their foray into property, who are some of the the professionals that you swear by? I mean, you have a buyer's agency business, right? Uh, yes, yeah. So I would say if you're, if you're looking for, um, well, this must be true of any financial services um business or sector is that look at how people get paid you know i would say if you're looking for a trusted professional you want somebody who's charging a fee for service they're not a vested interest in trying to push you into Mm. uh, the classic thing in aussie real estate has been um 
uh, not naming any names, but advisors pushing people into new apartments off the plan, quite often in Queensland for some reason, <laughs> the White Shoe Brigade, uh, because um, people are incentivized because they can take a commission yep. from the developer. But think about that logically. If someone's recommending you do that, they're doing it for their benefit, not yours. And you'll find that when that property is two or three or five years old, it's lost its newness premium, um, it's depreciated, your resale market will be thinner and you'll have lost money. So mm. the accountant or financial advisor, whoever it was, salesman who put you into that property has taken a 6% commission or more sometimes and you've done nothing good. So uh, yeah, and that's where I suppose when people see they report all this stuff about median prices have done this, um, there's a lot of moving parts that, behind, that are behind that number and a lot of people never make a cent from their investing in property. Speaking of... You just mentioned buying off the plan. Is that something that you've ever recommended or is that? Not for, I wouldn't recommend it for other people. I, I have done it once in Sydney, um, during the global financial crisis. So right. was, um, you could negotiate significant discounts because, uh, people, well, that they, they, those properties weren't valuing up essentially. So, um, people were exiting contracts and, uh, we bought a place, uh, suburb called Erskineville in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2009. Um, and people just weren't completing on those contracts because they were falling over left, right and center. Um, so that, I mean, in that circumstance for us, it made sense because you were buying a new property for the same price as the established ones locally, 2k from the city. Uh, but, um, yeah, where people come unstuck in real estate, it's either because they get involved in a bidding war, uh, the peak of a cycle or quite often they buy off the plan from a brochure property doesn't turn out to be what they thought it was hmm. or very often they pay a price which is essentially the developer's profit but after two or three or five years or however long it is you've no longer got a new asset the resale value is going to be less and um mm. yeah 10 years down the track people have achieved nothing but uh, headaches so um yeah i don't personally recommend people do it um in fact and i'll put it stronger than that you shouldn't yeah yeah well you and me both i've only heard bad stories come out of that yeah so you can i suppose the only time i would say in australia people have made decent money doing that is if for example if you buy off the plan in somewhere like barangaroo Mm. and you're kind of hoping that well in the three years or however long before that apartment settles you might have made a million dollars of equity in which case you've essentially made money from thin air but i mean sydney uh much as it's to its own drum to some extent in premium real estate for that type of property but i would say that's that's the exception certainly not the rule okay i'm not a property investor i'll be straight up so i don't own property at the moment in fact i rent but when i think about it and you touched on before you said location is key for housing and i i think i've i i messaged you about this not long ago and the difference between house prices and attached dwellings do you own units? Yeah, 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 particularly in Sydney and London, because in those markets, um, while you'd always love to own a house mm. in Bellevue Hill, realistically, <laughs> that's not going to happen for most of us. Um, certainly as an investment, because the cash flow is just not going to stack up. So mm. just as a general rule, if you're not familiar, uh, you generally find that cheaper, less desirable housing has a high yield, mm. and that yield represents a risk or a headache or a lack of growth or all of the above. The highest um, and most desirable property, the rent, the rental yields are typically extremely low. So unless you're buying for cash, um, it's hard to make those uh, actually work. 
So when you say extremely low, what might be an example? One percent, two percent. Who knows? Right. It depends on the you know if you if you're looking at the hot you know the Barford Estate in Bellevue Hill. Yeah, sure, they get some short, good short stay lets. But you know if that house is worth fifty million dollars, <laughs> the rental yield's not going to be much. No. But it's um, I guess the thing is with premium real estate, um, yeah, it's not really mum and dad investors in that type of property. Mm. Speaking of yield, I've read a few books on property investing in Australia and. You know, I've done a fair bit of research and, and some experts will tell you that when you're identifying a property to invest in that it's preferable to find a, a property that's positively geared or the holding costs do not outweigh the benefit that you receive from the property. Is that, in your opinion, does that have merit, that statement? Uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's, like, it's, it's, this is a difficult concept for people outside of Australia even. The idea that you might buy an investment that doesn't make you money. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, I wouldn't say it's uniquely Australian, but it is partly related to the, the tax system. Um, yeah. so for example, I spoke at the UBS European conference and on, on the uh, panel with me, uh, was one of the uh, most senior guys at the Bank for International Settlements. And mm-hmm. he, he was talking to me with great interest about the concept of negative gearing because he just couldn't get his head around it. Why, why would somebody invest in something? If you're actually making a cash flow loss, so there's there's quite a, a lot of moving parts though uh, to that statement. So uh, the, a lot of people don't seem to understand. You can be negatively geared, but but be making a positive cash flow. So that's one of the reasons that it's been so positive uh, and popular, I should say, in Australia because the tax benefits can actually push um, what on the face of it looks like a loss making property, but after the depreciation and the tax benefits, um, you can be in a positive cash flow. Situation, right. but I would say it's difficult to generalize because yeah. I, we found, um, in our experience that buying the best, uh, the, the higher quality properties, sometimes the rental yields aren't that, aren't that much chop because the value is all in the land. Mm. Um, so for us, uh, some short term negative cash flow, well, we took a big picture approach, but I'm not saying that's right for everyone because for some people, cash flow is more critical. For us, we were, two young professionals on um you know higher incomes yeah, and a bit of cash flow you know a few hundred bucks here or there wasn't going to make any difference to us so it's different for different people mm. it's just i suppose it's 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 a foreign concept for most people that look to the property market through a share market lens too right for and sure can, yeah and that's why I say, that's why i buy something yeah right? and in fact it's an interesting point because um uh, quite often you find people who are uh diehard property people um they they never really quite work out how to retire because the cash flow on property, and we found this even for, so uh, the, the oldest property in our portfolio is bought uh, mid-1990s. I mean, eventually it starts to throw off a good cash flow. But mm. even then, you've got repairs, uh, rates, uh, maybe land taxes, property management costs. It's taxable. It's not tax efficient. So you would need one heck of a property portfolio to live solely off the rents in a very abundant fashion so um and that's why i would encourage people to educate themselves about the stock market um even if you're a 100 percent property person just get a familiarity mm. even if you're investing a tiny amount just start to understand how the cycles work and um you know you've done some amazing stuff on etfs just learn about this stuff because one day that's going to be your cash flow and that's why i would suggest to people that even if they're starting with a small amount get some familiarity with it yep. because one of the things that, um, and we see this a lot in Britain, 
uh, because interest rates are the zero lower bound. But people who've invested their whole lives in land and real estate, they don't trust the stock market, even with uh, money in the bank earning half a percent. You know, mm. They still won't do it because they're just not familiar. They remember a stock market crash from 40 years ago. <laughs> um, so that's why I say to people that even if you're starting small, just get some education on it because um, in Australia in particular, we've got uh, dividend yields that are what, double the MSCI global average, uh, very generous uh, franking credits. Mm. And, uh, it's almost tailor-made for retirement, so uh, learn about it. Yeah. That's your preach to the choir here. Uh, 10 properties in 10 years. You obviously, I'm guessing you're 28, say, when you had this, this shift and in, in this plan, but you were independent by, financially independent by 33. Does that mean you were mortgage free? No. So I guess, um, my, our thought process was this. Uh, we were in round numbers. We we're thinking, I guess, a net worth of about 3 million Aussie. Yep. If you can earn a comfortable 5% return on that cash, the, my, my thinking was 150k per annum. To me, that seemed like a decent kind of target. Mm. Um, but at that stage, we still had, um, our LVR on our properties was still higher than it was today, still had real estate costs. Um, so it wasn't all free cash flow for us at that point. And in fact, uh, we never did sell down any properties. We've kept, um, kept investing stock market, property market, but, that was the thought process. Um, try and think of, well, what kind of passive income might you need? Um, maybe multiply that number by 20 and that, that could be a, a rough kind of a target. Mm. Um, but yeah, we've never, we're still at this stage, still accumulating. Um, but, um, yeah, like it's different for different people, but it's nice to have that peace of mind to know that, uh, should you ever need, um, to sell down some assets for any, whatever reason, you've still got that level of equity mm. that you can call it. We say financially independent, but people might say, oh, look at Pete, he's still working, he still has businesses. They do say that. <laughs> <laughs> is, I, I couldn't imagine you not working or not doing something, right? So if, what is financial independence to you? What does that mean? Well, we, uh, so when we finished up my last full-time role, we went traveling for about 15 months in the end. Mm. And I found it, I was very agitated for a number of weeks because I, I struggled with this whole concept of, uh, so we drove, uh, the big lap of Australia, which was like 26,000 Ks, hmm. uh, nice. camper vanning. Uh, we did a world cruise with Cunard for, um, you know, Sydney to Southampton. It's a couple of months. And I guess we, we traveled something like 28 countries. And, hmm. but even during that time, I was still, I was still on, you know, uh, financial news. I was going to the library, reading every finance book in the library. Uh, <laughs> I, and that's when I actually wrote, my first book because I, I just, to me, I, um, maybe it's, uh, blokes were not very good at just relaxing and seeing the sites. So, um, yeah, to me, I, I, even now, if I have a holiday, I very, would very rarely take a full day off. I still, you know, first thing in the morning, you know, I want to find out what's going on in the world. Yeah. Go, you know, I, I try not to look at my emails first thing. It's a useful piece of advice I've learned because mm. that can, that can set your day off on the back foot, responding to other people's requirements. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would very rarely have a full day not working. It, to me, it just doesn't feel right. I, I, these days I, I work in an area that I'm passionate about. So it, it doesn't feel like work. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, we took a, it was 15 months, uh, sort <laughs> of break from, uh, business or work or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I couldn't wait to get back into it, but it's, yeah, it's different for different people. My wife was, she would happily be now still doing the same thing, I think. <laughs> so it's kind of, 
the ability to do what you love, I suppose, is the or what you want to do, really. Yeah, it's just like control, right? Yeah, it's different for different people. So there, there's some amazing resource out there these days on financial independence retirement, mm. really. And I guess the model there is um, for most people, like minimize your expenses down to the bare minimum, you know, live on lentils, live on a caravan park, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. There's some of those sites in the US. Um, to me, that was never really much of a, a goal. I, I figure I'd, I like to think a bit bigger than that. But um, yeah, for us, I guess the... The number it would change over time because of inflation, but we're, we're thinking a, a three million Aussie dollar net worth might be a, a mm-hmm. good sort of a goal because yeah, you can get quite easily in Australia convert that to a five percent dividend income and uh, you're home and dry then, I guess. So mm. um, yeah, but it doesn't mean you necessarily stop there. You've got plenty of time on your side to keep going for sure. Let's shift now to some of the views that you have uh, on the markets. More recently, so we're recording this in 2019. One of the things, and this is not so much a view for this year or the next year, it's more of a structural thing. And if I peer over the fence and I, I look at property markets and how far we've come over, say, the last 10 or 20 years, in the past, there was, in my opinion, a, a lot of information and efficiency. You would have a property, a new property would come to market and it might be in the local magazine or it could be in the local paper and it would go to a select number of people. Now we have realestate.com, domain, all these data providers. We have tremendous amounts of analysis and analytics going on. Does that make the market more efficient? Because we look at the share market, it's got, you know, we've got more data than we need, than we need. Yeah, really. yeah. Same in real estate. Yeah. yeah. And does that make pricing more efficient? Does it make being a bargain hunter harder? Yeah. To some extent, that's true. Yeah. So, um, and especially when, when markets are buoyant, but generally most vendors have a pretty good idea of what they would like to get for a property, what they think it's worth. Um, people generally don't just give stuff away for less than it's worth unless sentiment is very weak, um, as it can be through the cycle. But I suppose there's a, there's a few different things there. So one is that the information isn't always great. Um, so mm. for example, there's this kind of rebuttable presumption that, um, a suburb level analysis is a good way to measure prices, but why? You know, nobody's ever explained why that's the case. And mm. if you think about it, that's a very arbitrary means of disaggregating figures. Um, and sometimes it's the postcode level. Uh, but in Brisbane, a postcode could go, could run from blue chip Riverside property in Chelmer all the way through, you know, Sherwood and Graceville and Corinda out to Oxley. It's an enormous area that's just captured by one number. And of course, within um, any suburb, you've got premium end, you've got the high side and low side in those suburbs, you've got um, you've got some housing commission, you've got some premium riverside houses, apartments. So I think so- some of the statistics are um, tortured a little bit. Um, but there's another thing in, in real estate too, is that what people want to do and what they can do in terms of financing, um, the, we've got this thing that I suppose it's called the credit cycle. I guess I see it more as a pendulum swinging towards mm-hmm. too loose and too tight. So I think um, p- what people are able to do is sometimes beyond what they should do and vice versa. Um, so that that is a big driver mm. of trends. Um, and also one thing that will never, I think, go away is this um, reflexive nature of markets so that bull markets kind of feed on themselves because people mm. get to that point and it's irrational for an investor, but for a home buyer, maybe not. That they start to worry that if they don't buy this month, 
well, they might be paying 50 grand in a month's time in Sydney or, or, you know, in two months time, it might be a hundred grand and it just becomes this thing that feeds on itself. Um, so those, um, cycles at the peak and trough, I don't think will ever go away. Um, you know, and the construction cycle will never go away. So even though markets might in some way be more efficient, um, the cycles haven't stopped and the credit cycle certainly hasn't stopped. So and the behavior is still here. Yeah. And the madness of crowds. I mean, it, it, I've seen it firsthand in recent years at both ends of the spectrum. And it's, um, and in some of the mining towns, it was completely off the scale. So it just goes to show that human behavior hasn't improved much. Mm. How, how about when you, you take a, a look at what we've seen in you know, the big structural macro, macroeconomic, uh, variables that we consider things like household debt interest rates falling uh, and just the overall performance of the property market over say the last 10 or 20 years can that be sustained for the next 5 10 or 20 years yeah well if you look over 20 years australian property ungeared has actually outperformed the stock market at least until a year ago so to me that doesn't make any logical sense and i don't think that if you're looking 20 years forth, I don't think that's even possible because, as you mentioned, part of this is a structural thing. And um, I've, I've actually, I mean, um, to my own detriment sometimes, been cautioning people in Britain because we started up as a buyer's agency in London. And I just say to people, just think about it. They've squeezed the living daylights out of interest rates here where people have been borrowing at under 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had QE. Uh, interest rates at the zero lower bound for 10 years. There is nothing, there's no more juice to be squeezed out <laughs> on that side of things. And, um, so, and that's why I see, um, you know, sometimes these resi funds raising money to go and buy no names mentioned, but, you know, regional properties in Britain. And I'm, I'm not sure that's a great story, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying there's not individual assets that might do okay, but, uh, the big structural change, as you mentioned, over, well, some decades now has been, interest rates and mortgage rates uh falling very substantially and that's not going to be repeated i mean there's always things that could happen i mean mm. maybe uh mortgage financing will become more global and there'll be more competition and more peer-to-peer lending who knows but yeah we're not going to see interest rates fall from 10 percent to five percent again on no. a mortgage so um yeah look uh so from that point of view um, i think a, st- a structurally different decade ahead makes a lot more sense how would you, how are you, how are you positioning? Because you're a wealth coach and you, you work with clients. How would you, how are you positioning them? And what are you, what are the questions you're trying to get them to think about? Oh, it's case by case. A lot of, a lot of what I do is quite often, um, with high net worths or people who've built up a substantial portfolio over a very long period of time. These days, people often have overseas mm. assets in Singapore or Hong Kong or Britain. Um, so, yeah, it's different for different people. So for a lot of um, people these days have to consider, well, how am I going to convert this equity into some kind of retirement you know, strategy? And that's where some big picture thinking comes in. Where do you want to live um, you know, in terms of location? Mm-hmm. But what type of property do you want to live in? Is there, are there any implications of repatriation of funds? Uh, so, I mean, this is a, a thing that's uh, faced us personally because we've got assets in two countries the tax years don't line up you've got this stub period you've got different tax rules in different jurisdictions um so i guess i've learned a phenomenal amount of stuff over the last 20 years as um you know accounting and tax compliance and real estate investing um so 
that's where I add most value with people. It's uh, identifying what's your situation and where do you want to get mm. to and what are the considerations that you need to look at to get from where you are to where you want to get to. We hear headlines, particularly in 2019, we've heard these really doom and gloom headlines for property investors. And there's probably some people listening to this that, are, that want me to ask this one question. Looking, you know, what we have in front of us now in 2019, is it as bad as what people think? And I suppose what if, if you just have a best guess, I mean, best guess, what would you expect to see over the next 12 to 24 months from Australian property? Yeah, I think it's a it's a yes and no answer because, of course, you know there is no one property market. Mm. It's a truism, but it's it is nevertheless the case that um, you know some markets have been very buoyant. You know, Tasmania and parts of southeast Queensland. You know, where I was living in New Farm for four years and listening to all this stuff about a property downturn. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like it yeah, to me. It? Yeah. But yeah, in Sydney, in particular, so Sydney would have peaked. Last last week of February 2017, you could you could pick it down to the, the weekend. It was an absolute, hmm. it was complete mayhem. APRA stepped in, introduced uh, caps. Uh, we had interest only caps, and then there was um, a whole range of rules on LVRs and um, investor lending. So that that killed the cycle absolutely stone dead. Um, so yeah, I guess um, you know I haven't really touched on it, but one of the third string to my bow, I guess, is a business person is as a market analyst and I write reports for uh, hedge funds and fund managers and so on and um, yeah this is something we warned about um, probably a little bit early in hindsight but um, the risks in markets like Western Sydney where you know median household income of say 55k but people bidding up house prices Mm. for the yield or just because that's all they could afford and when people are paying multiples of, uh, that they were the risk in those markets, single income earners. Uh, I I said at the time, you know, you can't have fibro shacks compounding away at twelve, fourteen, sixteen percent when you know, some of the best fund managers in the world are struggling to make those returns. It's that's not going to sustain. So, I think in some of those markets, south and uh, southwestern Sydney, western Sydney, uh, some some pretty big fallout coming, I guess. Um, and but it's uh, one of the things we've learned from modeling over the years is that the supply responsive markets are often the hardest hit so um because almost by definition uh, more people are buying at the peak and the downturn can get amplified so if you're looking at sydney take a look at some of the areas around apartments in liverpool or epping some parts of i guess canterbury so some of those areas where a very high uplift in the uh, in the stock has happened in just a few years. Um, is it always apartments or can it be new housing estates? No, new things? housing estates as well. Yeah, so I guess in southwestern Sydney. I mean, we're not active in those markets, but just look at all housing market modelling. It was like where supply can respond because of the lag effect. Um, you find a lot of those mm. things that when they settle, they're not worth what people paid for them. There's a big clear out. Um, so I would think it would be pretty easy to find... Um, so there's a massive, massive surge in Chinese investment in Sydney. So if you went to a suburb like Epping, you could find an apartment that someone bought off the plan in 2014. Uh, you could probably pick that up today for 20% less. So when people talk about um, you know median prices, you've got to go beyond that and say, well, okay, because um, as I mentioned, places like um, some places like Darling Harbour, like it's some property markets with water views and stuff like that have hardly been touched but 
Um, yeah, you've got to go a level below just the median. Uh, but yeah, I still believe uh, Sydney there's still some fallout to come um, because there mm. is an overhang of new apartments that were bought some years ago still coming onto the market. Um, sentiment's pretty low. Mm. But you've said that you you're still active in the market, right? Like your your long term plans. Yeah, look for yeah. So as a, a buyer's agent, we I mean we pretty much. Um, have done very little in Sydney. We we actually, um, when the market went completely nuts, we were still searching, but the, we were looking at auctions and just saying that this doesn't make sense. Mm. You know, 50 people turning up to bid, you know, you, you're not going to buy something at a good price. So we weren't buying in that frenzied period. Um, so most of what we've done in the last uh, four or five years has been in Brisbane. Uh, but even within Brisbane, there's markets within markets because high-rise apartments um they've been overbuilt and brisbane also has uh flood zones and uh some sort of outer ring areas where you wouldn't necessarily yeah. want to invest so you've got to pick your asset um but i guess the outperformers are good school zones and houses on good blocks in the inner west where you can just add value to them that's the real um upside in brisbane okay something for our listeners to go home and think about and maybe sure, from yeah. there jump on google maps and have a look around this conversation, obviously, there's a lot of, I'm asking you a lot of general questions because there's just so much to talk about. And we've already gone a very long way over time. So I'm conscious of that. But as we come to the end of this, I think you, if you, if you're an Australian investor, whether you're in property or not, on Twitter, on Instagram, you're one of the best followers there is because every day there's content and you've got the blog. How can people find out more about you, the new book? Um, where can I subscribe to your blog and your, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, just at Pete Wargent. Um, but yeah, the easiest way is simply Google me, but my main website, uh, PeteWargent.com. Um, but I also have, as you mentioned, a daily blog, uh, yeah. daily blog, Pete Wargent blogspot. Um, well, I'll put in the show notes as well. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's some of my stuff's a bit nerdy and some of it's technical and so, some isn't. But, um, yeah, like I, to me, I just enjoy writing. So as you said, there's always daily content, mm. uh, to enjoy. Uh, charts and so on and um yeah it, it does uh it serves me well from a business point of view as well because um particularly for fund managers and hedge funds overseas we've we've um, done a lot of stuff with them in recent years because australia mm. you know it's household debt and construction all this stuff it's interesting to hedge funds mainly on the short side yeah for sure uh last question my favorite if you could go back and and tell a younger you something about money finance investing or even just life in general, what would it be? Yeah, well, the, the most obvious thing is start today. But um, I think in my case would be actually to s- surround yourself with the right people because, you know, uh, it's often said, oh, you know, you can't do what you did. You can't do it today. Well, maybe that might be literally true. You might not be able to do exactly the same thing. But by the same token, look at all the opportunities that have opened up. Mm. I mean, you could be financially free in one year if you can set up an online business that generates income more than your expenses so yeah just have an open mind and surround yourself with uh, positive people who actually cheer your wins and um, yeah don't surround yourself with cynics and naysayers because it won't help you yeah what's the, what's the saying it's um, stay away from negative people because they'll find a problem to every solution yeah that's true and it's um, it's true you can't choose your family or your work colleagues and all the rest of it but, but all I'm saying is maybe try and turn down some of the negativity and spend more time with people who actually are going to benefit you and you can learn from. Wonderful advice, Pete. Thanks for joining me on the show. And also, thanks for your support throughout 
my journey as well. I've, I really appreciate it. It's been, um, yeah, I don't know what my expectations were for the Rusk uh, podcast and all the rest of it, but have wildly exceeded them. So it's been fantastic. Now, mate, thanks for your support and shows like this help me. So thank you. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.